This episode of 80 Days is brought to you by HarryBaby.com, the company that makes the funniest Irish-themed t-shirts. Harry Baby shipped to 71 countries last year, and to celebrate its 10th anniversary in 2017, Harry Baby aims to deliver to all 196 countries in the world by St. Patrick's Day 2018. You can help by ordering now from HarryBaby.com and use the promo code 80DAYS, that's 80DAYS, to get 10% off. I am willing to wager 20,000. I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Don't accept. I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to 80 Days, an exploration podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet-powered balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong, and joining me today are... Joe Byrne in Bern, Switzerland. And Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And in this episode, we'll be talking about the Republic of Seychelles, a country made up of an archipelago of 115 islands in the Indian Ocean. This former British colony has a population of just over 90,000, the smallest of any independent African state, and lies 1,500 kilometers or roughly 1,000 miles off of East Africa. Just like its neighbor Madagascar, the islands are best known for their unique geology and diverse wildlife populations. White sand beaches and clear blue oceans abound here in what was once a haven for pirates marauding throughout the Indian Ocean. A tropical rainforest climate ensures that the islands are hot and humid year-round. Victoria, the capital city of Seychelles, is the smallest capital in the entire world with a population of just under 27,000 and the country today is one of the most prosperous in all of Africa. Joe, let's talk about the early history of Seychelles. Blissfully, there isn't any. Yay! Um, this has been... Yes. Normally, we spend a lot of time trying to find the one, the one book about the thing that happened in the year 100 AD, and here's nothing. There was nobody here until, uh, until the Europeans. Just a bunch so of coconuts. There's no oppressed indigenous people. There's no. Uh, it's it's beautiful. So maybe in and around 200, some Malay people from Borneo stopped over here on the way to Madagascar. There's maybe a little bit of evidence that they kind of island-hopped along Sri Lanka, the Maldives, the Seychelles, down to Madagascar, and that they colonised that. So Madagascar's actually got a, uh, uh, a Southeast Asian population, which I didn't know. Huh. Um, but they didn't stay, they didn't set up any settlements. There's also some suggestion that Arab traders passed through the area. The, um, the Coco de Mer which was a, a very popular export and it was important in Chinese medicine and sold to them by Arab traders. And this coconut only comes from the Seychelles. So it's suspected that maybe some traders came here just to get this lucrative product. But um, it also floats in the ocean. So it falls into the sea, it sinks, and then when the interior rots, it floats again. And it would crop up in the Maldives and even as far away as um, as Malaysia sometimes, floating across the Indian Ocean. We should mention, Joe, this is a this is a pretty incredible tree. Uh, as oh, you, it's spectacular. As you mentioned, uh, native to the Seychelles, 
It can grow up to 100 feet tall, and the leaves from the coca de mer, which translates into coconut of the sea, I believe, can be up to mm-hmm. 20, 20 feet wide and 30 feet um, long. Sorry, I'm just looking at this. I, I didn't actually look at this before. It looks we'll, like a pear. We'll get to what it... Yeah. <laughs> okay. We'll get to, okay. We'll, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No, we'll get to that. All right. <laughs> so so you, got, you guys are aware. Wait, 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 you, yeah. Everyone yeah. saw that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sorry, it just in, in the just, unsuggested image searches it says nut for sale. I'm just, sorry, I okay, I gotta I gotta close this window, guys. It's too it's too yeah, distracting. It's, that is the rudest fruit I've ever seen. There'll be an image in the show notes. So it's a double nut um called the love nut. And it basically when it washed up in the shore, it looks like um a pair of buttocks. Uh, I think specifically somebody 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 bent over forwards. Yeah, that's, that's um, what that looks like. And that's I mentioned its popularity in Chinese medicine is as a fertility. Uh, oh, I was going to make a joke yeah. about that, but like, honest to God, it's always just stuff to rub in their willies. <laughs> so, um, and it was called a coco de mer because, as I said, it would float across the ocean. Then when it rotted inside, it would, it would rise to the top. Mm. So the Malays who found it thought it just uh, it came out of the sea. It was a tree at the bottom of the ocean. And, um, um, and that must have been where it came from. I'm also seeing another bit of the plant, which also looks like a spotted wiener. Yes, the, the, the plant has a male and a female. And the female produces the ridiculously... Um, Honest um, to God, this thing is pornographic. Yeah, basically, Google image search this when you're you're alone. Yeah, not and, at work, um, not, at, not work. at work, not cool. And all the parts of the plant scream fertility symbols. Some have suggested this was the forbidden fruit that uh, Eve ate in the Garden of Eden, <laughs> uh, because the Seychelles are essentially a paradise. Um, but they they it's an instance of, of island gigantism, and these. Uh, these nuts, these coconuts can weigh up to 18 or 20 kilos and the leaves can be like 20 feet wide. So they're just absurd uh, species. They're now endangered and pretty much unique to Praslin and Curious Islands. So the first people to actually take notice of the Seychelles Islands uh, were the crew of Vasco da Gama's second voyage, where he went around Africa to India and back again. Uh, he was a Portuguese explorer. And he quite self-importantly named the string of islands he saw as uh, the Amarantes Islands, which mean the islands of the Admiral being him. <laughs> uh, but they didn't, I don't think they even went to shore. They just, uh, but, but they started marking the, the Amarantes on maps of the region. And also, 15 years later, seven inner islands of the Seychelles archipelago uh, became as Sete Irmas, the Seven Sisters. So the next mention of the Seychelles comes in uh, 1609. That's like a century later. Yeah. yeah, about a century later. And like, that's the thing. You, you look at the Seychelles and, you know, it's, it's kind of out on its own, but it's, it's along what you would expect to be the route between, you know, Europe and India. Um, but despite it being, you know, kind of a tropical paradise, no one ever really set up shop there. And, even, and like, even when they do, and we'll get to that soon, it's almost kind of half-heartedly. They're not mm. like, yeah, we got the Seychelles, guys. Like, no, they're like, 
I don't know, send along a couple of people and build a house. We'll see. Which is like, really unusual because they're, they're, yeah. it's a beautiful place. Like, I, I don't see why people just kind of ignored it for 300 years. Just, yeah, yeah. I think like, it's because there were no indigenous people to oppress. True. Yeah, we we do love that. The, the well, where's the fun if you don't need to conquer it? Oh, boy. Okay, so uh, 1609, uh, the sailors of the first British ship uh, to pass by, which was called the Ascension. And this was a ship of the East India Company. We have we've talked about them at length in other podcasts. Uh, They've a, got their fingers and everything. A, a bad bunch of lads. We can all we can all agree. Uh, basically, a company that's an extension of the British state to go out and rob, steal, and murder in the name of whatever king or queen is sitting on the the royal the royal hoop. So this uh, this ship recognised the islands as I quote an earthly paradise. And another quote, this is from the ship's agent, Jean Jourdain. You cannot discern that ever any people had been there before us. Of course, we know that Vasco da Gama had, had set eyes on it and a bunch of other people, but, you know, whatever's Jean there, Jourdain. There was something about a storm, right? Uh, yeah, I think they took shelter from a storm yeah. in, in the bay there. There's, uh, like, shallows. I think that's the only reason they actually went there was because it was really stormy, not because it looked lovely. Yeah, yeah, again... Can't get no love. Can't get no respect. It's the Rodney Dangerfield of tiny island countries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, and again, like blank space in the timeline up until the mid 1700s, pretty much. Um, yeah, well, there were some pirates there, definitely during the, the gap. Like there was definitely some Indian Ocean piracy happening, but there's not really much record of who or what or why. They just, it, it, there was no one else there. You know, it's 115 islands spread over nearly a million square kilometers. Yeah. So hard to govern. Yeah. Um, so in mid 1700s, I've got the year 1742 on an expedition mm-hmm. of exploration of the Indian Ocean. Lazar Picot uh, discovered the largest island of the Seychelles, which he named L'Ile d'Abondance, the Isle of Abundance. That's nice. Uh, naming it after the coconuts, the timber, the wildlife and the natural harbour. The natural harbour, I think, is actually where uh, the the English uh, sheltered 150 years previous. So I found a book called The Unpublished Documents of the History of the Seychelles Islands Anterior to 1810, mm. compiled by some English uh, characters, and it contains lots of um, French documents. But in the, in the foreword, the guy has the most snobby attitude. He kind of goes... The earliest papers are the journals of Lazar Picot, who spells his name with provoking indifference. Um, so he's sometimes C-A-U-L-T, sometimes C-O-A-T, just kind of whatever. It's like the most important thing about this guy's discoveries is that he's not very good at writing. It is Typical French, know. right, my, my Anglo-Saxon brethren? <laughs> the discovery voyage by the Elizabeth... Um, described the island that they first set on as the I'm paraphrasing because my, my 18th century French is rubbish for shame they described it as being abundant in water and in wood which one could mature in the case of the need of a large vessel so like enough to build a ship pre pre uh, pre shadowing there that's, that's yeah good. the uh, the place was was fine <laughs> sound quite right lots of sea and land turtles uh. coconuts and palms the islands is surrounded by all types of birds, turtle doves, bats, grey parrots, which are common there, and sea animals. The land is mountainous and well wooded, replete with waterfalls and rivers rich in fish. There are gorges where the land seems very fertile. It's you only travel a good league around without a single appearance of a bad beast. 
We took tortoises, wood and water for our travels. These were only of an ordinary size. Uh, the tortoises were to, to allay the loneliness of the sea. They were... Oh, no. Tortoises no, are apparently... Please. They're apparently delicious. Oh, yeah. They, a lot of species of tortoise went extinct during this, this era because they were really tasty. Delicious and, and tender just, lovers. Uh, and another... I think another important thing to note about uh, this, this time is that tortoises actually uh, can last for a very, very long time without mm. any food or water. So you just oh, have boy. chests of, of tortoises and a plentiful supply of fresh meat as you sail around the world, which is, yep. you know, not something you want to think about when you think of tortoises, but uh, is is what happened. Moving on, uh, there was like intermittent exploration of the island. In 1756, uh, I have Captain Corneille Nicolas Morphy. He was the commander of the French East India Company frigate Le, Le Cerf. The lesser known of the of the East India companies. Yeah, same kind of vibe, same kind of vibe. On November the 1st, 1756, he took possession of the Seychelles in the name of the King of France and the French About East time. India Company. They left a stone of possession, which I assume means like <laughs> basically a plaque, uh, a big, a big steaming stone of possession on uh, on the island of Mahé. Just a rock with the word France carved into I it. I think so. <laughs> yeah, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. Um, France was here. Yeah. So, and similarly, they, you know, they had a, they had a scoot about and they're like, Jesus, it's pretty nice, you know. That's what everyone seems to say when they get there. Let's uh, leave and never come back. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Uh, Well, we've seen it now anyway. Uh, An inland expedition sent by Morphe said they found crocodiles on the mountaintops. Uh, That was a note on, I guess, the abundance of wildlife there. That they were kind of saying... There are are golden geckos that look kind of like Komodo dragons, so maybe... I I think they basically mean there's stuff everywhere. Um, mm. And it was named after the Viscount Jean Moreau de Seychelles, who I believe was actually like, he was like the minister for finance for yeah. like two months or something like that. He yeah. seems to have been a really boring person to name an island after. Deeply dull. Very deeply dull. Uh, he, he was the comptroller of something. But as we've already established, nobody really wanted this place. So just like, meh. <laughs> and he wasn't really aware that it was named after him either, I don't think. I mean, wow. they were very far away. Um, so moving on, uh, there was a, a man by the name of Pierre Poivre. So... Peter Pepper, uh, and he was, uh, he was... He pi- did he pick a pack of pickled peppers? We're going there, Joe. Oh, no, uh, we're not. The head, he was the head knob in Mauritius, which, like, Mauritius was also uh, run by the French and was kind of, like, the more... Uh, there was more authority placed in Mauritius. Seychelles was basically run from Mauritius. So he was... He was he was kind of running the Seychelles from Mauritius. This guy Peter mm-hmm. Peter Pepper, the Frenchman. So he decided to try and introduce spice plants to the Seychelles. Ah. Uh, and as Poivre now means pepper in the French language, many authors have claimed he is the origin for the Peter Piper rhyme. Peter no. Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers, uh, and I don't remember the rest of it. On the Seychelles. Uh, in the, yeah, in the Seychelles, yeah. That's not, that's not what I expected. It doesn't rhyme, but it's correct. Yeah. Um, so Poivre was basically trying to make a go of growing spices in the Seychelles, mm. which kind of makes sense. Cinnamon as well. Yeah, cinnamon. Which makes sense because this was on, on the spice route. So they're like, well, if we can kind of grow some stuff without having to go to India, we've just saved ourselves a trip of a couple of thousand miles. So thumbs up to us. In 1770, uh, 15 white colonists, seven slaves five Indians and one black woman settled on St. Anne. Uh, basically, they were trying to set up a, a colony, trying to in- inhabit the place rather than just using it as a kind of a, a stop off. 
And Saint Saint Anne is one of the many islands that make up Seychelles, correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and they were trying to raise funds in Mauritius for this uh, kind of colonization, I guess. Uh, the next year, uh, Peter Pepper, uh, Pierre Poivre, sent uh, Antoine Gillot to the Seychelles uh, to establish a spice garden. Uh, it seemed to not really work out in the end. The uh, colonization didn't really take and the whole thing kind of went bust. Navigators realized there was a faster route for France to get to India using the Seychelles and the Brits started sniffing about as well for similar reasons. So they finally sent a proper garrison uh, who set up shop at modern day Victoria uh, and control passed to a guy called Jean-Baptiste Philogène de Malavoie in 1788. Great name. It's a good name. Cool Great name. Uh, and he was one of these guys, we've kind of seen them in other places. Uh, he's a, you know, hardline administrator. He wants the place to run like a Swiss watch. They run really well. <laughs> you would know, Just Joe. for anyone who hasn't been for, here. First, first person there. Uh, but bear in mind, this is 1788 and some, some change is going to come. It's uh, very close to 1790, i.e. Oh, the start oh of the French Revolution. Yes. Um, when that starts happening in the Seychelles, they start running their own affairs because they're like, well, France is kind of not really a thing. And they decided to ignore the rule of Mauritius because Mauritius was the local authority but for, uh, Mauritius was really only getting its uh, orders from France anyway and wasn't really getting many orders because if your country is tearing itself apart, mm, overseas colonial uh, possessions are slightly less of a priority. Mm. Um, so they decided to recognise only the, the authority of the French National Assembly, knowing as they did, there basically wasn't a French National Assembly right it's then. It's on fire right now. Yeah, so. Exactly. It's being, being, being burnt and people are like holding pieces of cheese on forks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, I think that was the invention of fondue. Maybe you can correct me on that there. Mm. Um, as they, they burned them at the Bastille. But uh one of the things about the Seychelles was that they wanted to hold on to slavery, which became banned in France from 1794. They they saw it as the only way to uh, to maintain to run the their backbreaking plantations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're not um, going to run the plantations. We need these. Free you want slaves. me to work in the fields? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what were, they, what were they growing at this point? Oh, like cinnamon, was it uh, sugar. Uh, yeah, I, I think some sugar as well. Uh, I mean, they, it seems to be they've got this great climate, and they seem to be very adaptable in what they grow. Even today, mm. like you know, there's coconuts and there's there, I think there's some cinnamon, maybe a little bit of rice as well. Yeah, well, co- coconuts come in after the abolition of slavery, I think. All right. Well, they, they because they're they're more they're more labor or less labor intensive. Okay. Well, I, ha- I have this quotation around from from 1794. As one of France's shaken emissaries to that island explained, the horse, the cow, the ass, and the African or Malgasy were all seen as animals provided by nature for the Europeans' use. That is how things were run on the Seychelles. That does explain a lot about the world. Yeah. In 1793, we get this guy turn up who, you know, for all intents and purposes during the French period, is Mr. Seychelles. Uh, he is Jean-Baptiste Croix de Concy. Uh, he takes over, and I have a quotation about him, that he kind of entered into a power vacuum. There was nobody there who was like a, a big-time Charlie, who had that confidence and had you know the, the aspect of a, a French aristocrat. And how this is explained, and it's kind of weird, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. He was a Grand Blanc meaning like a, a big white. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah as, opposed to, as opposed to a Petit Blanc, small mm-hmm. white, or a Blanc Brûlé, which which is what they termed 
burned uh, white burned white which like, means like mix, mix mixed race, race or? or somebody who's been out in the sun too long who's there too engaged with manual labor of lower classes but yeah blanc brulé burnt white it was a, a term i saw so his thing was that since france is not really a thing right now he allowed uh corsairs which were cooler sounding french privateer ships to replenish and hang out there a little bit And as a result of this, he uh, attracted the attention of the British. So the British basically put the place under siege and he managed to negotiate his way out of it uh, with uh, a capitulation was the term. Basically saying, look, lads, we don't have much authority. If you guys want to kind of run our affairs a little bit, that's fine. But we recognize that we are subservient to you. And he managed to talk his way out of all of the kind of French pirating he'd been allowing to happen yeah i read uh, a little it, bit about this guy he seems like yeah, a little bit played. weasley uh <laughs> if i'm honest he actually negotiated with the british to have the seychelles because there's a, a blockade of uh, mauritius going on at this time yeah yeah and he yeah. negotiated with uh with the british for ships from the seychelles to be able to fly a flag with the word seychelles capitulation written on yes this. Uh, which would allow them through the blockade. So basically, we surrender. Don't don't bother with us. Don't don't you know? Nothing to see uh, here. Nothing folks. to see here. Just just leave us alone. Was this the guy who who kept surrendering? Yes. And then as soon as they left, he he resurrendered seven times. So yeah. he resurrendered seven times. Um, and, and then as uh, soon as they left, he put up the French flag again. Uh, well, kind of yeah. <laughs> so the the French Revolution trundles along. And we get Napoleon. Napoleon ascends to authority in France and he becomes a lot more authoritarian and a lot more shooty at the British, which kind of... The epitome of a democratic republic. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, emperor, maximum emperor, whatever the hell you want to call him. So this leads to a confrontation in 1801 called the Battle of Mahé. So the the Chiffon, which was a, a French ship... Uh, it was a, also, I think, you know, it was a warship as well as a transport ship. But they were transporting mm. um, uh, rebels, basically, Jacobin uh, rebels who attempted to kill Napoleon with a bomb oh, in Paris. Nice. Uh, and he loaded a bunch of them up into a ship and was like, send them very far away. Uh, and also uh, go to the Seychelles because... Back then, you didn't task a boat with a very specific mission. You didn't say, you know, uh, fight this boat or go to this country or whatever. You basically sent them to a general area of the world to generally mess with whoever the competition was in that area. Right. Okay. Um, so this was the idea. They were like, send them off, uh, piss off the Brits and deposit these uh, attempted murders on the island. And so they turn up thinking like, well, the Seychelles is a bit of France, isn't it? And the Seychelles is kind of like a bit awkward about that because they're like, eh, yeah, kind of, but we said this thing to the Brits and it's a bit, you're making it not cool. You see so these just flags like, that we're flying right now? Like, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> the, the we surrender flags. Yes. So uh, the British ship navigated up the shallows, uh, apparently with a guy hanging off the front of the boat to judge the route through the coral because there's all these coral reefs around the Seychelles. Oh, wow. So dark water equals deep and light equals shallow so they're like coming up with like a battleship uh through this coral reef and then oh. attacked it attacked the chiffon uh, which was in uh, in port and the chiffon, chiffon apparently had like uh, unloaded some of their cannons onto the shore uh, as like a battery so they started shooting at the british the british not not so happy about that so once they had exploded the chiffon they came ashore and were like WTF, guys? Uh, what was all that shooting at us about? I thought we were didn't, best buds. Didn't what's, seem what's very happening? surrendery. Yeah. Um, 
and Quincy again somehow managed to talk his way out of it. And uh, yeah, it was actually after this that the Seychelles flag flew under the flag of uh, Seychelles capitulation. Yeah. Um, there was another minor battle later on, which seems very like gentlemanly uh, between La Flèche and the Victor, uh, these two boats. Um, and yeah, the, the, the French ship was uh, shot. But instead of surrendering it, the French captain ran it aground and then burnt it. Uh, the English captain congratulated the French captain on his courage and skill. Uh, <laughs> and I have a quotation here from a, a book I was reading. Neutrality always meant what Seychellois wanted it to mean. Uh, in 1810, the whites on the island totaled 317. Free blacks and what were regarded as uh, what were termed coloreds were 135. So a third of, of, of the whites and slaves were 3000. So there were oh. 10 slaves to every every white person. Of course there um, were. And also to just quickly mention, uh, as I was reading about all the kind of colonial, uh, you know, divilment, uh, I came across a, 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 a captain of a ship called Captain Planet. Uh, so I just thought I'd mention that there as well. <laughs> wow. Uh, captain Planet, I'm sure. But, you know, he, he's a hero. Uh, he's a, he's a hero. Pollution down to zero, <laughs> etc. Uh, I hope somebody gets that. then we have uh, Mauritius, a larger power that was supposed to be asserting its control over the Seychelles. They surrendered to the British forces after that long blockade. Quincy is informed that he is done with his weaseling ways and he can remain in charge of uh, the Seychelles, but that he must follow the terms of the surrender. Uh, and a Lieutenant Bartholomew Sullivan is installed to monitor this, uh, the situation. And he does not have a very good time of it. Uh, he struggles to assert his control and he can't stop the French ships being resupplied, uh, can't clamp down on slave trading throughout the Seychelles. So the British had outlawed slavery, they slave had. trading at this point, but not slavery itself. Not slavery itself, but mm-hmm. they had outlawed the slave trade and yet this now as a British territory was not conforming to, okay. to those rules. So uh, he complains that Seychellois had uh, no sense of honour, shame or honesty and promptly decides to resign. Good man. Yeah, needless to say, this is a this is a tough colony to manage. Uh, in 1814, the Treaty of Paris uh, ceded the Seychelles and Mauritius to Britain, so officially they became uh, part of Britain's network of colonies around the world. Okay. Welcome to the Empire, fellows. Yes, this is going to be great. In 1827, a census in the Seychelles revealed that the population was around 6,600 slaves and only 685 masters or uh, free people, which is uh, similar to what you mentioned earlier, Mark. So, like, slaves about have doubled in about 15 years. That's yeah, in bonkers. about 15 years, they, they, yeah, they, they pour more and more slaves onto the islands to uh, beef up the plantations. And yeah, we still have a sort of a 10 to 1 ratio of free white people uh, versus the slaves. 1835, then the complete abolition of slavery in Britain and France makes the already established plantations and the economy of the islands as as it exists at that time very tenuous. So many of the uh, plantations economically collapsed and many others, uh, slavers just said, I'm taking my slaves and I'm getting out of here. So they may have just... uh, you know, gone off to find somewhere that was friendly. More to, accepting uh, of their ways. The slavers, yes. Yeah. 
poor oppressed slavers. So in the 1860, then you get a period of around 13 years from about 1861, where around two and a half thousand men, women and children are brought to the Seychelles to work and apprentice in the plantations. And mm. this it's around this time that you get Victoria, the present day capital of Seychelles, begins to grow and begins to become a, a sort of a town in its own right. Okay. And there's a shift from sugar and rice and cotton to coconuts. Yeah, you, I think you mentioned that earlier, Joe, didn't mm. you, that, that uh, they began to plant coconuts around this time. Yeah, yeah many of the um, plantations were based around the coconut trade. So in 1879, um, there's a survey of Victoria. So we get uh, a druggist, two auctioneers, five retailers, four liquor stores, a notary, an attorney, a jeweler, and a watchmaker. And that, that's it. That's it. That's that's, that's pretty much the whole need. town. Right. That's that's everything you need. So the biggest source of contention, I guess, for the colonizing forces and uh, those that had stayed to run the plantations was their dependence on Mauritius. And this began to be sort of a thorn in their side going forward. So in the early 1900s, around 19, sort of 1902, 1903, there are a number of prolonged campaigns and the Seychelles is finally uh, granted the status of crown colony in its own right sort of French culture and language and food and the French population there was still very, very much dominant. Yeah, to this day, the, the language spoken mo- most of the time is, is a is a Creole, a French Creole. Yeah, yeah. C- called Seychellois. Mm. Which, which is basically, like, if you, if you read it, it's just French, but with just like the spellings all weird. But like spoken, it is very, very close to just normal French. It's not even like a very changed creole it's is very mm. very close to the original french just quite accented yeah exactly yeah and spelt like it sounds yeah, where exactly. french isn't <laughs> okay so you mentioned earlier joe but the sort of uh, those that tried to kill napoleon uh were sent to the seychelles just to kind of get them away from mainland france but um yeah, that, that becomes a trend where the British are like, ah, we've got this network of islands that are really far away from uh, Britain. And uh, maybe we can send uh, inconvenient people from other colonies here. So uh, there's a couple of interesting stories around this. My favorite one was this one, uh, Leila Pandek Lam, who was a Malay nationalist, was sent there in 1875. And he led an uprising against uh, British rule in the Perak region of Malaya. Okay, seems civilized enough. So the British resident, I believe the authority figure in the area at the time was a guy called J.W.W. Birch. And uh, one day he's just kind of relaxing in his home in uh, Malaya. Thinks he's landed himself a pretty, pretty cushy job. Got a few kind of rebellious locals to deal with. But, you know, things seem to be going pretty well so far. Uh taking a bath and uh, <laughs> this guy this guy uh, Pandek Lam uh, accompanied by an accomplice what, what does, uh, he do? does he do? does he give him a cake? he uh, does not give him a cake uh, okay. I'm, I'm worried for the state of undress of this guy <laughs> uh, <laughs> this guy is uh, approached in his bath by these two men wielding spears oh boy oh. and sort of thinks ah oh, this is this is probably not so great a situation to find myself in uh, and is stabbed to death in his bath which is right, kind he, of a, he was right that it wasn't great then um, yeah it's kind of a you know just picturing that situation in my head being approached but in the bath by someone with holding a spear it's kind of like i can just imagine a real sense of helplessness at that point well at least you know he died the way he came into the world 
wet and uh, naked and helpless and, yeah. <laughs> and scared I, like, I, I really th- very scared I really thought yeah. that they were going to do stuff to his, his junk uh, and maybe they That's, did maybe they did maybe they just didn't tell people did. I did not read about that uh, which is, wait, wait, but, when uh, he was naked I was like this is only going one way they're going to mess with his, his business okay. um, but this guy is now celebrated as a folk hero by Malay nationalists and he's seen as a, a symbol of the Malay re- resistance against Br- British colonialism which is kind of interesting the fact that they didn't just execute this guy they decided to send him to Seychelles I mean some of his accomplices they did uh, execute I believe but uh yeah, he was sent to... Well, this to, is the same uh, time that Napoleon shows. gets sent to islands in the Atlantic yeah. and keeps coming True. back. You know, it <laughs> yeah. seems to be the, 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 the style of the times. <laughs> this guy's trouble. Let's keep him in play, but just... Uh, well, I think... Just I, put him somewhere else. I think they feared that if they, they killed, you know, this Malay guy or Napoleon or any, any of the other, other people, they'd make too much of a symbol of them. They'd make a martyr to mm. them and people would actually really lose their nut. A la, you know, Irish independence post-1916 rising. They killed a bunch of the leaders and the... Irish people actually for losing your a brief yeah. period were like ah oh, no not, not not cool guys and then that was basically it where if you imprison someone they just become boring and old but at the same time like as you say Napoleon kept coming back from these islands and uh, you just be like oh wait I thought we put ah oh, boats I forgot about <laughs> boats <laughs> like Jesus <laughs> forgot about boats um, yeah so this guy actually quite interestingly he uh, would go on to write the Malay national anthem based on uh, music that he heard in the Seychelles mm. I believe the, the lyrics have since been changed but uh, the kind of the, the tune of uh, the I, I think I came across this guy too it was like some musical like some kind of British musical tune he heard in Malaysia he just started whistling when he was asked for a national anthem or something was, yeah. were the, was the title of the national anthem originally Bath to the Bone Something like that. That's all, I could, that's all I could think of in the three seconds I had while you guys were talking. But, but I think he was quite popular in the Seychelles as well. He was. And the thing was that uh, a lot of the political prisoners that were sent here, I'm not going to get into all of them. There's, there's quite a few interesting characters, though. But they all sort of were like, this place is beautiful. Like, this is, you know. <laughs> Why is uh, it going to be sending me to this yeah. tropical Exile, island? so yeah. bad. Like, this is not too bad. A tropical naughty step. Um, and wh- where else were prisoners sent from? What other colonies were? Uh, they became home to prisoners from Zanzibar, Egypt, Cyprus, and Palestine. Okay, so as, a nice uh, multicultural bunch. Right. Yep. Great yep. food. Great food, mm. I imagine. So in 1914, we have uh, the start of World War One, and that was a tough period for the colony. You have naval battles throughout the Indian Ocean, meant that the islands uh, found it very tough to be supplied, which caused a very uh, quick surge in crime, where people would j- just sort of steal and uh, rob food and that sort of thing. And then once they were caught, they were uh, shoved into prisons that rapidly became overcrowded. So the, the economy and everything was collapsing in, uh, in the Seychelles. I have this, this quote which shows how bad stuff was getting. Uh, larceny became rife and the prison was full of hungry inmates but without troublemakers, making the point that people would you know, get into trouble just to get into prison to get food. Um, to make the matters worse, Governor O'Brien, in an effort to solve this embarrassing situation, set up a committee who recommenced flogging and caning as an incentive to, to the, for them to pay their rates. The situation was so alarming, with the increasing oh, number of destitute, so to discourage begging, the government moved them from Mahe, Praslin and Ladige, the, the three big islands, to the leper colony of Curios Island, thus spreading the risk of leprosy. 
before he went on, before he went on leave, mm-hmm. Governor, Governor O'Brien decided to tax the poor instead of raising taxes on the landowners. Also, there was a lot of rain in 1915 and uh, the Seychelles was severely affected by dengue fever, cellulitis and something called solpis, which it, in French translates to chaud piece, which is hot piss, uh, which is oh. their word for venereal disease. Uh, oh, and there's also nice. jaundice and hookworms. Um uh, it doesn't sound great, guys, I'll be honest. Uh, then eventually Governor O'Brien was replaced by a guy called uh, Sir Eustace Edward Twizzleton Wickham Fines. Who was, wow. Uh, uh, <laughs> ooh, that was a deep breath there. Twizzleton. Uh, who was the parliamentary private secretary to Winston Churchill. But he, he was a bit better than O'Brien, who seemed to be an absolute shambles of a guy. Yeah, never trust a guy with an Irish name oh, to do anything. Oh, come on now, Joe. You need a Twizzleton Fines. If you, you know. <laughs> Twizzleton Wickham Fines. Wickham, Guy, another guy here uh, that you might enjoy, a name that you might enjoy, Mark, uh, a General Smuts uh, forms okay. the Seychelles Labour Contingent, uh, which offers men a way off the island to go and fight in the war, I believe. And around 800 men are sent to East Africa. And after about five months, only half of them return with the rest dying from dysentery and malaria. Ugh. Oh, no. By the end of World War One, the population in uh, Victoria had swelled and throughout the Seychelles had swelled to about 24,000. And the landowners begin to push for the Seychelles to have more control in their own affairs as taxes for the British Empire were crippling what was a very delicate economy uh, with you know not a whole huge amount of money to be made. So reforms were very slow to come along, though, and then... Uh, we have very shortly after the end of World War One. obviously, we have the start of World War Two, which puts all these reforms on hold. During World War Two, some uh, Seychellois people served in the British Army. The most notable contribution here that I could find was about the Pioneer Companies, which were a company of Seychellois men who served throughout Egypt, Palestine and Italy. Uh, I have some stuff on this, actually. Uh, so the, the Pioneer Corps, which is uh, the, the corps to which the Seychellois joined, and I have it been between 450 and 2,000 volunteers went to join. And this was uh, a similar corps to, to the one that the Seychellois joined in World War One, But they were basically support troops. So, you know, building bridges for the tanks to go over, uh, clearing uh, fortifications once they'd already been, you know, conquered by the armies. So more, more workers than soldiers. Kind of military workers, yeah. Mm. Uh, they were also known as the king's most loyal enemy aliens due to the high numbers of Jewish Germans serving in these corps. However, they were kind of very strongly looked down upon by the regular army because they were you know, support troops. So I actually found this limerick uh, about the Pioneer Corps. A motley collection of ineffectual blokes dredged into the army by war's hunger for bodies Clerks and light laborers, intellectuals and incapables, too short or too tall, weak in the head, too modest or bright to be an officer, unfit to fight, fit to clean stables, cleaning up after the proper soldiers, tidying the war. That's you what sure were... that's a limerick? I don't know. Maybe not a limerick. Uh, 
Beat poetry. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Weird beat poetry. It's just like a, it's like a slagging match. It's yeah, just basically the army calling them. Bad at their matches. jobs, not very nice, kind of smelly. I don't like them. <laughs> a bit foreign. Here is my poem. You're a dick. Um, but uh, I also found this interview with a, a guy. He had served in the Pioneer Corps. And he, it, the, the interview was like in, in 2013 or so. But it, it kind of showed how, you know, not particularly well treated they were like they were regarded as second class soldiers in you know world war ii so what i saw from him was we entered the war without a rank and left without a rank we were known mm. as the pioneer corps he got five medals and 56 dollars <laughs> from the uk government uh for fighting world war ii also uh i also read that uh, the seychelles was used briefly or you know uh, periodically for the refueling of seaplanes so i guess the seaplanes would have been in all likelihood scouting the indian ocean for uh u-boats and transport ships and, and the like uh, but they were just seemingly far away enough from uh japan and the operations there to really not be bothered by the war directly all that much at all it's so far away yeah. from everything. Far enough from the Eastern Front and also quite far from the Western Front that, you know, this sort of escaped certainly the majority of the fighting in the, in the Second World War. For sure. So after the war, we get into moves towards independence, right? So We do. They elect a legislative council in the 448, which yep. has some autonomy. It's still, still a, a British colony, but... They're given a bit more input. This is a pattern we've seen in a few other places we've looked at. Kind of 20th century, the British started feeling uncomfortable about the whole empire thing. Yeah. And importantly, then only people that owned land were allowed mm. to vote. So of course. You have a very small small percentage of the population that, that's you know controlling the fate of the rest of the population. But at least they're able to sort of assert some kind of control over, mm-hmm. them, mm-hmm. over their own affairs. And then in 1964, we have the formation of a couple of uh, political parties. Yeah. And this is the point where the British have basically said independence is happening. Independence is on the way. It's where it's kind of been the track has been laid. So mm-hmm. yeah, uh, you have two political parties that were formed: the Socialist uh, Seychelles People's United Party under uh, France Albert René, which is uh, backed by the Soviet Union and campaigns for independence from Britain, and then the pro-business uh, Seychelles Democratic Party, chaired by. Sir James Mancom, who advocates closer ties to the UK, and both of these men would go on to be pretty crucial figures in sort of the independence movement of the Seychelles. Mm. Yeah, so 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 Mancom or Mancham, I'm not sure. I've heard both. I think mm. Mancom is correct, though. Who knows? He can write in if he's not happy. He probably would have been happy enough not having independence. So he he was pretty. He was the more conservative leader of the two by a long distance. And he received quite a bit of support from Britons for, like, to have an orderly transfer of power. So in 66, his party, the SDP, win, win the elections. Um, in 67, we have universal adult suffrage brought in um, for membership of the Legislative Council. And then in, in 1970, there's a constitutional convention in London in March uh, where they discuss how independence will work. Mm. The SDP wins the election in November that brings into into being the new constitution and the new government. And uh, so he becomes the chief minister of the colony. In 1974, there's another election. He stays in power, winning 52% of the vote. But the constituencies are a bit gerrymandered, to be honest. So the SDP wins 17 out of 20 seats in, in the assembly, 
with only 52% of the popular vote, which that doesn't seem That's the Brexit percentage. Right. Yeah. Mm. But the, the, it should be, they should have had 10 seats with that, those numbers were in 17. Yeah, so, out of um, 20, it should have been, you know, 10, yeah. possibly 11. So. Well, we, we got democracy sorted in the, the 21st century now. We've got it, we got it yes. running like a... Yeah, like a, thank God that doesn't like happen anymore. Oh. So in 1974 and 75, there's independence. They, they negotiate for independence as a republic. And it's all very civilised and there's a coalition formed to lead the country to independence. There's a British Oversight Review Committee brought in to ease some of the tensions about how the electoral system works and the, the gerrymandering and so on. Uh, the islands of Aldabra, Farkar and De Roche are returned to the Seychelles as part of the independence package. And then on the 29th of June 1976, um, the Duke of Gloucester, I think, formally hands over power to President James Mancombe and François-Albert René as Prime Minister. So the two of them are working together at this point. We have a uh, just a very, very uh, interesting clip from a 1970s kind of-esque uh, news report, which I'm just going to drop in here. Just gives you an idea of uh, kind of the view of independence at the time. The Seychelles, a tropical paradise that sought and found independence. When a British Airways BC-10 arrives at Mahé, the main island of this sparkling archipelago on the Indian Ocean, it brings customers for the Seychelles' most abundant commodity, warm friendliness and relaxation and an easy-going way of life that promises sheer heaven for the tired businessman and his family. Lying near the equator, the climate of this necklace of islands is far from equatorial. The charms of the Seychelles haven't been unknown to tourists in the past, but the coming of independence has quickened world interest. The Seychellois are meeting the demand with carefully planned tourist attractions to go along with those jet-set hotels. The inhabitants are gentle and happy-go-lucky. They're a handsome race of mixed ethnic origin. The big day itself for the blossoming republic. The island's colourful president-elect, James Richard Marie Mancham, greets the Duke and Duchess at the stadium in Victoria on Mahé for a national display and the flag-raising ceremony. With Mr Mancham as the leader of the Seychelles People's United Party, the Honourable France Albert René, who will become Prime Minister after independence. This all sounds great, right? You've got a lovely coalition working together, independence. I, for one, am placated. We're, we're in good shape so, uh, forever. Uh, yeah. So I think we, we just wrap it up there. Yeah. Yep. These two political <laughs> allies working together, everything is going, Every, going great. You know, everybody's pulled in the same direction. Yeah, so Mancom, Mancom goes to London for a Commonwealth conference in June of 1977. And René's supporters stage a coup, allegedly without his knowledge, but uh, he's quite happy to take the presidency. He is known by government officials and, and party members as the boss. Yeah, boy. And after coming to power, the constitution is suspended. We get a one-party state. Elections don't really happen anymore. Um, Why would you need them with one party? Exactly. That's just good planning. Uh, René declared that he was not a Soviet-style communist, but rather an Indian Ocean socialist. But he was supported by the Soviet Union and by um, Tanzania, which was also ruled by a left-wing anti-colonial government at this time. Great. So they, they had sort of a military ally in the region, uh, which made this a viable... That helps. 
system. It is important to point out, though, before this, the US had built a satellite tracking station oh, in yeah. Seychelles. Um, so there, there was kind of Cold War... There was a bit of everything going on. They were very much in the crossfire. I think, was that in the 50s or so? It was not too it long was, after the war. Yeah, it was It was before before the coup. Yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah. Um, um, I just want to drop in a note here, Joe, but uh, Mark, Markham left the Seychelles and then sort of had the country taken away from him in, in his absence. He has written a few books, actually. He's, he's you know, he's still, still writing uh, today, but written a few books about various different subjects. I believe he wrote a book about 9-11 at one point. Mm. But he wrote a book. Uh, his first book was about this coup, uh, which he gave the rather contentious title Paradise Raped, oh, which is, uh, is a surefire way to get yourself a bestseller, I'm sure. He still... He still goes around and um, is considered an important statesman internationally. Uh, so he's still a yep. player. But by him. But he just lost his country. Yeah. Okay, so in 1979, we get our first counter-coup attempt. Because the problem with, rule, with coming to power by a coup is you've got to open the door to be cooed at. Where, where, uh, where was it that we had like incessant coups? Was it Liberia? Some guy had a oh. coup, and then there was like seven coup attempts against him. And then he he like executed people who were going to have a coup, but they weren't. And then they did afterwards he, because they felt he was killing pigeons because yeah. they were just saying coup. He was like paranoid about coups <laughs> coming in left, right, and center. Yeah, that was so a, um, check out our, that joke. our Liberia episode for that, <laughs> which is uh, you know a, a bundle of of fun. You know, definitely uh, our most uplifting you know. episode today. Yes. Okay. Definitely. Just just so, for, uh, for listeners, that is sarcasm. It is not uplifting. <laughs> if you listen to that episode, no. go in eyes open. Yeah. So seventy nine, a plot to invade the Seychelles was overthrown. Uh, an overthrow René was aborted when it was discovered by his government before the mercenaries could leave Durban in South Africa. Um, an official investigation there figured out that France and the US have been directly involved with the plotters. So the CIA were getting their hands in the game, unusually. Um, That's not something they're known for. No, no, particularly not during the Cold War. And the American ambassador in Kenya had been in contact with supporters of James Mancom. Uh, the, the US charged affair in the Seychelles, I think, was... Uh, was um, expelled from the country after this and loads of Americans and French people were expelled um, f- including French military advisors mm. who were replaced with Tanzanian and Algerian ones mm. and also in the 80s uh, more than 100 North Korean military advisors were on the island oh. which is a interesting list of friends Yeah. at this point uh, President René befriended a colourful Italian businessman Giovanni Mario Ricci, All right. who became his unofficial financial advisor. Oh boy. Could you pick guy, a more Italian name than that? Like, no. Could you could you actually think of a, a more Italian name? Maybe than Luigi Mar- Mario, Mario Ricci. Ricci. <laughs> yes, true. But this is Giovanni. Hey, he loves his mama, all right? But he, like, he was convicted of fraud in Italy in 1958. He got on to seek his fortune abroad. He was convicted a second time of fraud in Switzerland for counterfeit currency. Then he lived in Mexico and in Haiti, then made his way to Somalia, where oh he had a business exporting grapefruit. He Bastions was expelled from Somalia for some reason. <laughs> if you, no, if you're, no one's really... If you're too extreme... If you get kicked out of Somalia, yeah. If, yeah, exactly. If you're too extreme from uh, Somalia, you are just too extreme. Yeah. That is... Uh, and yeah, he was, he was a distinctive figure on the island, instantly recognisable, 
by his long white beard. Uh, but he did all kinds of mad stuff. And it seems like Rene really trusted him to do the business end of things. So he became the go-to guy. If you wanted to do business in, in the Seychelles, you contacted Ricci because he spoke this, the language of business. This um, should not be the, your go-to guy for business. The, the, gra- the graft language. And yeah. he had all kinds of... Like, he managed to get... He set up the Seychelles Trust Company, which the with the which the, the state originally owned most of, but then sold to Ricci. And it, it was the offshore company registration office. So to set up a company in the Seychelles, you registered with this trust. And I found a quote in a in a, a an article about this, where they just put it this way: In effect, the Seychelles became the world's first socialist tax haven, which is kind of nice. Um, hey, first. You know, and all the other tax havens are are capitalists. So it's nice that the socialists were giving capitalists an opportunity to avoid tax. And he also, just one of my favourite details about Ricci, who seems to have had connections with the mafia, with organised crime, with arms dealers. Surprisingly. Anything you can imagine. Very surprisingly. In 84, he was accredited to the Seychelles as a diplomat, representing the sovereign order of the Coptic Catholic Knights of Malta. Which, it emerged, was not actually the order of Malta, as it sounded. Right. It was just a company founded in New York by um, by some Italian businessman who'd been involved with the P2 Masonic Lodge Vatican Bank scandals. Oh, when they... I, wa- I wonder who I wonder who rubber-stamped that application <laughs> in New York. Like, I want to set up a company called the Sovereign Order of the Coptic Catholic Knights of Malta. Sounds great. And sort of, you uh, know, you're sell, scrutinizing this application form and saying, e- okay, sounds like a typical name for a department store you mean, to me. Yeah. You mean you mean the banking scandal where they they killed that guy in London and hung him off the yeah, Blackfriars Bridge? Well, did uh, he killed himself? No. Yeah. <laughs> you know he, he was real he, tired he really, of living that guy. Yeah, that like that that scandal went deep into Italian everything. Yeah. And Seychelles was involved a little bit, so that's nice. Um, it's nice to be included. A, a veritable bunga bunga of corruption. Hmm. But here's the interesting coup attempt. Eighty one. This is um. Wait, so that wasn't interesting. No, no. So the 81 right. coup was, was almost a farce. Uh, it seems to have started with um, Martin Dolinchek, who was a, a Bureau of State Security operative in South Africa, kind of like a Secret Service um, CIA-type yeah. outfit. Because the South Africans and were pretty, like, they were, you know, elbow deep in a lot of stuff around the world. They were increasingly on their own in African yeah. politics as uh, apartheid a was state. unpopular yeah. and and um, white people were losing minority rule in all the other countries, Rhodesia and Congo and so on. Mm. And so there were discussions began with people who wanted to see Mantum return to power and uh, the, the man who was approached to lead this was a guy known as Mad Mike Hoare. Oh boy! Who, according or to the reports, is either H O H O A R E, not yes, the other way around. Um, he was either born in Ireland or British India, but he, he was definitely of an Irish uh, heritage, and he served in World War Two and then as a mercenary, in famously leading the Commando Five unit in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So we may someday get to the Congo if we if we're gluttons for punishment. But, um, but this it, guy, needless to say, this guy has seen some stuff. He was on the side of the um, when, when the Congo got independence from Belgium, the Katanga province that had all the stuff tried to secede, 
and uh, that was where the rich people were and the white people and so on and uh, and Hoare was a mercenary fighting on their behalf he 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 uh, came up against Che Guevara fighting on the other side and um, to quote from a BBC article Guevara's mission failed and he was chased out of the region by white mercenaries led by Colonel Mad Mike Hoare oh boy so he you know he was a great, basically a right wing guerrilla in the way that Guevara was a left wing guerrilla um, would be the easiest way to sum it up. During the Cold War, you had all these non-aligned, non-governmental folk just floating around fighting everywhere. Murders. Murders for hire. Uh, yeah, for hire. So, Hoare rounded up 53 mercenaries. They disguised themselves as a, as a rugby team uh, and a drinking club called the Ancient Order of Froth Blowers. Nice. They claimed they were going to the Seychelles on like a charity mission with toys for children. Uh, but actually, they had AK-47s in the false bottoms of their bags. For children. Uh, for children. Most of the mercenaries were, were former South African Defence Forces or former Rhodesian soldiers. And he testified later that the operation had a South African cabinet approval. So this went Genie. all the way to the top. But the coup was a disaster. One of the guys accidentally went through the um, Something to Declare channel <laughs> in, the, in the airport. I'd like to declare these AK-47s, And according please. to one account, and they found his AK-47, it all went to hell. And he just blurted um, it out too. He was like, I don't even know Lots of shooting. Oh my God. The whole airport was wrecked. We said they shot their um, way out of the airport. Back onto uh, an Air India plane that had landed, oh that had just God. landed, despite all the gunfire, because they didn't have enough fuel to go anywhere else. Ah, oh, boy. Uh, so they lost, the mercenaries had one casualty, Johannes Fritz, South African, and one Seychelles Army Second Lieutenant David Anta was killed. But they left behind five mercenaries, Dolinchek, the uh, South African intelligence officer, and a female accomplice. Uh, and they would all be charged with treason. And um, I mean, basically, they, they hijacked the, the jet to escape. And the captain was like, yeah, I'll take you to Durban or wherever they wanted to go. Just, I need to refuel. So they covered him while he refueled the jet. And they wanted to ditch their guns over the sea, which resulted in the pilot laughing at it and going, you know, this is a commercialized, or this is a pressurized commercial passenger jet, right? Right. You can't, you can't just open the door and... <laughs> Honest to God. Because uh, they were it's used just to, you know... the window there, Jim. Yeah. Um, Excellent. There are some suggestions CIA were involved, but Hoare's testimony says they were, they were extremely timid when he, he approached them about it. So they definitely knew about it, but they weren't particularly involved. Right. And it ended up with the Pretoria government, South Africa government, paying a ransom of $3 million to get the five uh, people charged with treason back. And uh, it actually turned out pretty good. Um, in the aftermath of this coup, South Africa and Seychelles realised they had to come to some kind of understanding. So Seychelles started to compromise to some of South Africa's interests in the region. South Africa started to go a bit easier on the Seychelles. And actually they came up with a a pretty, um, like incredibly corrupt, but reasonably cordial arrangement where intelligence officers and, and businessmen were all, there were companies owned by spies, South African spies that like ran huge tracks of Seychelles business. It was all pretty bizarre i'm, I'm just but, glad to see like some proper treason like you tre- people are charged with treason nowadays and it's because <laughs> like they wrote something on facebook about the you know the king being a bit of an arsehole or yeah. somebody did some journalism and that was treason uh whereas this is like they turned up in the country with a bunch of mercenaries and ak-47s trying to take it over that's like it's kind of textbook treason good job good job um super times 
the uh, there was a trial for the mercenaries. Um, I think the UN were involved, and uh, Hoare was described as an unscrupulous man with a highly cavalier attitude to the truth, and given ten years in prison. And was then voted US president. What? Hmm. Anyway, now he's written loads of books glorifying the mercenary trade, and the book or the, the movie Wild Geese with um, Roger Moore and Richard Burton in it. Oh, yeah. He was the he was the advisor, and it's basically oh, wow. fictionalized him. But yeah, so the South Africans started helping to undermine coups, and they actually undermined a coup plan by Gerard Oro, who had been exiled for the '79 coup. They then exiled him to the UK, and in 1985 he was assassinated, and we have a clip here of the news coverage of that. Good evening. The president of the Seychelles, Mr Albert René, was accused tonight of being behind the murder of a political opponent in London today. Mr Gerard Warreau, who was said to have organised an unsuccessful coup in the Seychelles three years ago, was shot dead in broad daylight at his home in Edgware. The former president of the Seychelles, Sir James Mancom, who was overthrown by Mr. René, claimed it was a political assassination. We live in a very ruthless world and uh, we know for a fact that uh, the house of many exiled groups were broken into and we've been uh, bugged by agents of the René government. Now, if uh, they are prepared to pay agents to burg our houses, then they should be able to do a lot of more. So yeah, in 1991, then we have uh, multi-party democracy is restored to the Seychelles. But surprisingly, uh, René continues to be re-elected. And Mankum actually comes back into the into Seychelles now and just loses. Oh, did he go back? Yeah, yeah. Okay. He's, he's it, like it's legitimate multi-party democracy. Um, Post fall of the Soviet Union, it just wasn't viable anymore. So, okay. Hmm. So yeah, René was. Surprisingly popular among the people of the Seychelles, he managed to turn the Seychelles from a poverty-stricken, like underdeveloped country into a middle-income, well-governed state with universal health coverage and over ninety percent literacy, which you know, as we mentioned at the top of the show, is now one of the sort of most economically prosperous mm. countries in all of Africa. Mm. So he must have been doing something right, despite the fact that he was, I think, what a lot of people would deem a benevolent dictator. Mm. He's elected in. 1993, 1998, mm-hmm. and 2001, uh, each of which, all those elections, he won against opposition in democratically free and fair elections. In 2004, he, after 27 years at the th- on the throne, as it were, he steps down, and uh, his, his number two all that time, James Mitchell, takes over. And, uh, and he is still in power today, correct? he's still in power today, yeah. yeah. Uh, or maybe, yeah, no, I think he is. He's either in power or he's just about to step down. One of the biggest threats to uh, the Seychelles currently is actually climate change. Like other island nations, I suppose, throughout the world, a few of which we've talked about already, such as Nauru, uh, the country is very susceptible to rising ocean levels. Mm. Uh, And I have a quote here from an interview with The Guardian. Ronald Jamur, who is an ambassador for climate change uh, representing the Seychelles, spoke to The Guardian after the Paris UN summit on climate change in 2015. And he said... Uh, it's not just a question of islands slipping under. People think that it's very a very simple story, but we would become a failed state. Our economy would collapse. Around 80% of the population and 80% of the economic activity is in coastal areas, which is which are flat. We would lose our airport. 
which is our number one industry, tourism. Mm-hmm. We would lose our fishing port, which are no, is our number two industry. We would lose our capital. We would lose all of our power stations. We would lose all of our schools, which are on the coast. All of our hotels are on the coast. What can we do sitting on mountains? We can't feed ourselves. That, that's so a fair that gives point. You a, that gives you a pretty good picture of uh, what the Seychelles would be if uh, ocean levels were to rise beyond, uh, I think it was 1.5 degrees that was targeted in mm. those Paris talks. Yeah, no, they're one of the, the most, out them and the Maldives are really, really at risk. Just uh, a point yeah. on that. Um, so talking about uh, water levels rising, um, the Seychelles are unique as far as I could tell in terms of uh, archipelagos, that they are the only uh, island archipelago made of the stuff of continents, as opposed to, you know, volcanoes or volcanic mm. materials. They're granite. The, the granite, sort of, yeah. A big chunk of the islands are granite, which is the, the main islands, granite ocean islands. They, they broke off from yeah. uh, India uh, 65 million years ago, and the islands have never been submerged by the sea, which is, makes them pretty much unique. And uh, oh, right. out of the other places that we've, we've profiled, I was looking through like where the you know, countries rank in terms of size. It's smaller than the Isle of Man, taking all the land together, and smaller than oh, really? Singapore. Um, and it's uh, the only places we've actually looked at that are even smaller are Gibraltar and the Kowloon Wall City. Um, hmm. So, yeah, bonkers. In terms of land wow. area. In terms of land area. So uh, going to some of the other uh, things of the Seychelles, food. Uh, their food is a mix of Southeast Asian and Indian flavors. But I've got uh, two standout dishes that I found. One is shark chutney, which is a skinned and boiled shark. Beautiful. Uh, served with lime and something called bilimbi juice, which I never heard of before, but it's, it's apparently quite uh, tangy. And then bat curry. Uh, apparently bat, uh, I read a review, uh, is like super tough duck. Uh, and then when it's skinned, it looks like a tiny person. Um, oh, that's awful. After the coup attempt, uh, they rounded up, uh, after the various coup attempts, they rounded up all the guns on the island and the bat population flourished because people really only had the guns to shoot those bats. Oh. Uh, moving to modern day defense, uh, the Air Force has three propeller planes, uh, all of which seem to have been pretty much donated. Uh, one from the UK, one from China, one from Germany. Uh, they've got patrol boats that were donated by China and the United Arab Emirates for some reason. Um, and in 2010, they rescued uh, six Seychellois and 21 Iranians from uh, Somali pirates. They uh, they shot the F out of three pirate ships. They shot 10,000 rounds at the boat with the hostages on it uh, before eventually the boat caught fire and the hostages jumped in the water and they saved them all. The Coast Guard picked them up in the end, but uh, yeah, that's pretty hmm. pretty hardcore uh, hostage uh, rescuing there. So their view on pirates has changed since the 1700s. Uh, yes, shoot them with 10,000 They really rounds. don't like pirates. Yeah, um, uh, yeah at one point uh, the president said that piracy cost between uh, seven to twelve million dollars per year to the international community, and that the pirates cost four percent of the Seychelles GDP, including direct and indirect costs for loss of boats, fishing, tourism, and is an indirect investment for the maritime security. So hmm. Uh, affects like local, you know, the local fishing industry and that sort of thing, and obviously discourages tourism. Yeah. So they're they're very very uh, vocal in the fight against piracy particularly Somali pirates if, if you I think believe. about it imagine like that most of their supply would be coming through the Suez Canal and then down the East African coast so like Somalia is in between them and their main supply yeah. lines so that makes sense that they would be that that much afflicted there have been some problems in, in, in Seychelles with with, um, with illegal trades and stuff through the years 
with like uh, arms trades, drugs trades and stuff because it's kind of on the way from everywhere to everywhere and yeah. just kind of loose tax laws. And so a lot of those complicated relationships between like spies and organised crime and dictators that were built up during the Cold War, they're still kind of percolating and things like ivory and diamond trade mm. still have some connections with the Seychelles that occasionally flare up. They're also getting involved with uh, offshore banking, as as mm. you know, is very common for small nations. Uh, their economy, yeah. apart from... That and tourism is the... Yeah, their economy, apart yeah, from tourism that... has been the largest growing sector uh, since independence, I believe. Like, it, it employs about 30% of people in Seychelles right now. Mm. I, I, and it's it's gorgeous. Why wouldn't you? Like, it it is paradise uh, it, they have about 230,000 visitors a year that was in 2013 apparently mm. uh, they also have a lot of uh, fishing particularly tuna and they've got a lot of farming uh, which is 95% done on state land uh, so it's mainly oh. uh, bananas papaya coconuts and tea I did also see two things uh, that were a little strange one was that they're doing uh, exploratory oil drilling and there's also some manufacturing of uh, chemical cigarettes and also beer and TVs going to sport they have attended the last I think seven or eight Olympics they have never won a medal but they did not attend the Korean Olympics uh, because they boycotted it uh, out of respect to North Korea for North Korea exactly ah. uh, so 1988 no Olympics um, sure, well, they, they had North Korean military advisors exactly. at that point. So. Um, they play some football, but they mainly play in something called the Indian Ocean Island Games, along with Reunion Island and Mauritius, the Maldives, Madagascar, the Comoros, and Mayotte. And my last note that I have is just on biodiversity. Um, they have mm. crazy biodiversity. They've got uh, bats, yeah, do. uh, dugongs, whales, sharks. They've got the Aldabra drongo, which is this bird uh, that has a small population of only a thousand birds on the island of Aldabra. They've got the Seychelles warbler, which went down to 30 in 1968 and is now 3,000 today. Um, and apparently a bunch of great white sharks ate uh, some of the crew of the Sorcouf in, 19, sorry, in 1800. A bunch of French privateers were eaten after they fell in the water. Uh, wow. so, uh, we, we have, have to a, mention have, the giant tortoises. Uh, oh, yeah. I have a list, actually, of my, my favorite um, favorite animals from here. So I'm, gonna, oh, I'm just going to list them off real quick. Uh, one is the uh, gar- the first one is the gardener's tree frog, which is, uh, you know, pretty standard, but it's a, a tiny, tiny, tiny tree frog, which could probably uh, would comfortably sit on a dime or a 10p coin. Uh, then you mentioned, Joe, the Aldabra giant tortoise. Mm-hmm. Uh, males of that species can weigh over 180 kilos or 400 pounds and are the second largest reptile on, on Earth. Second so there again, the that, that, that's island tortoise. gigantism, like the yeah. Coco de Mer. Sometimes oh, species when they get trapped on an island can get really, really big. The Seychelles black parrot, which uh, is not actually jet black, but uh, is kind of a grayish brown color, is kind of an interesting, you know, for a parrot, which, you know, traditionally is a type of bird that's very, very colorful. Uh, but what it lacks in color, I've read, may, it makes up for with a strikingly melodious bird song. Uh, the Coco de Mera, which we mentioned at the top of the show, mm-hmm. which has, you know, uh, can grow up to 100 feet tall and its leaves can be up to 20 feet wide and 30 feet long. It looks like a butt. It's, it's seeds, seeds, which do look somewhat like a butt, can be up to 18 kilos of 40 pounds, which, you know, you would not want one of those to fall on you from 100 feet in the air. Uh, the whale shark lives mm. uh, in and, you know, in and around the Seychelles. That is the largest fish in the world. And one which I found particularly terrifying is the coconut crab. 
which is the largest land invertebrate, another example of uh, island gigantism, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, also known as the robber crab, as it'll sort of just pick up and carry away any any food source that it comes across. Uh, this thing can weigh up to four kilos or nine pounds and grow up to uh, one meter in diameter oh uh, from leg to leg. Thing. Whew. And can live can live for up to sixty years. If you want uh, to have nightmares tonight, I would recommend looking this thing up on YouTube. It's 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 pretty scary it's, it's looking. It's the size in my of of the top half of a human. Yeah, it's the size of a human <laughs> torso, basically. This crab, it's it's crazy. I'm looking at this dog um, trying to fight one. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. it's terrifying. But yeah, that's that's all I have pretty much. Um, yeah. the music of the Seychelles, which we will have featured in the episode. Is a it's reflection kind of, of the some various Afro cultures. Cuban influence, some French yeah, influence. It's quite specific. Polynesian. Isn't it? It's a weird mix. Yeah. That's it. Any, have you got anything left, Joe? No, it's, you know, it's somewhere I want to go, but uh, I think we've pretty much. I'm definitely not going there with those crabs. No way. <laughs> Seychelles, seashells by the Seychelles, the Seychelles shore. shore. As they Peter say. Poivre picked up. Yeah. So it's, it's a land of tongue twisters. Tongue twisters yeah. and terrifying crabs. Yeah. Uh, that's, um, that's what I've learned. Yeah, so interesting place, and I'm glad they, they kicked off at around 1500, otherwise we would have been here forever. So that's our episode for this week on the Seychelles. Uh, thank you very much for listening. We would really appreciate if you have enjoyed the episode, if you could uh, leave us a rating or a review on iTunes, that really helps us, or you alternatively can just tell a friend about the podcast, or share us on Facebook or Twitter. We also this week have to thank our sponsors for the season, Harry Baby, remember you can get a... 10% discount on any of their products at harrybaby.com by using the promo code 80 days. That's eight zero days. And two of our recent Kickstarter backers, Rob Curran and Krista Phillips. Thank you guys so much for your generous donations. Also a note for Kickstarter backers is that you will be hearing very shortly about your t-shirts, which will be on the way. Check your inboxes for more information on that. And if you didn't uh, back our Kickstarter campaign, you can still get hold of a t-shirt. Just visit our website for more details. Finally, you can find more episodes of 80 Days wherever you find your podcasts. And you can subscribe to us on Facebook or Twitter at 80 Days Podcast or drop us an email at 80 Days Podcast at gmail.com. Mark, where can people find more about you on the internet? Uh, I'm at MarkBoyle86 on Twitter and I've got a blog called The Toner of Leek. Leek is in the vegetable. Uh, and just put in WordPress when you Google it and it'll pop right up. And Joe? People can look at my blog at timetoburn.com, where burn is spelt like the Irish surname. You can find more about me at my website, lukejkelly.com, or on Twitter at the Luke J. Kelly. Thanks everybody for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. Thank you. Bye bye. Goodbye. <laughs> Par la façon qui m'ont élé, élé, élé.